0: I'd like to welcome David Cypress, distinguished member of the class of 1968 and recent author of What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. Some of you may have seen John Stickney's review of his book on our website, uh, which we coaxed him into creating. Uh, John also attended the April 3rd, 2022 book launch at Housing Works Bookstore in New York. So thanks once again for that, John. David talked to us from his studio in Dumbo, the hip and trendy Brooklyn neighborhood, which translates into down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass and has nothing to do with flying elephants. The studio is a convenient 15 minute walk from his home in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, David, John Stickney observes that you make only brief mention of Williams in your book. (laughs) Well, that's not completely true, I guess. When I searched the Kindle version of the book, there was another Williams that popped up, but that turned out to be Bernie Williams, the famed New York Yankees center fielder, and not the college where we all got to know you. You do tell us about the amazing education you had in New York, Hunter Elementary, and then the Horace Mann School. So how did you get from there to Williams? Was there something particular about Williams that attracted you?
1: Well, actually, um, the story is that, you know, they had a, at Harsman, you started preparing for college in ninth grade. I mean, it was really high pressure situation <laughs> actually had a course and how to conduct yourself in a college interview, I think in around ninth grade. So the pressure mounted both in school and at home. And, um, that At one point, I had good grades, and um, my mother decided, though, they weren't good enough, and so she demanded that I apply to 11 colleges, which I did. And then she went with me to meet with the college advisor, who explained to my mother that he sensed I was kind of an insecure person, and that a small school might be the right landing spot for me. So, although I was accepted at many other schools, including some of the best ones, uh, I chose Williams because my mother insisted that I'm insecure and it would be a good landing place for me.
0: Mother knows best.
1: <laughs> That's how I wound up there. No other reason, really. I, I'm just going to say I really wanted to go to Wesleyan because they had this um, this year in Europe. Uh, uh, option, which you could take, and I was obsessed with going to Europe and Paris and all that, but i got re- it was the only school I got rejected by, and about six months later, the New York Times published a report that uh there was a Jewish quota at Wesleyan, and it was a huge scan- huge scandal
0: no, so you're kidding yeah. wow, wow, <laughs> that's amazing, oh. Well, I'm looking here at an image from the um, college yearbook, the gull, as we called it. And it looks exactly the same, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I can see this impish grin and does not look at all shy or insecure. Um, uh, Standing right next to Barton, as we call him today, Phelps, who's uh, in disguise with some shades. Everybody seems to be wearing ties. But you're there, and Chet Gulrick is there, uh, Dick Heller is there, Jim Thompson, Doug Jones, at the same time as we have Jack Schindler, uh, Spencer Beebe, Peter Rice, sort of a, 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 an interesting collection of characters. But somehow, out of all that, an image emerged, and in fact, I think a t-shirt, Uh can you enlighten me i i lived in morgan which was completely isolated from the quad life this was sage b i believe Um, sage b exactly yeah
1: and and, um there were a number of residents i i would sort of put put myself peripheral to them but certain other folks you mentioned very central who uh like to have a good time Mm -hmm. and um It didn't in any way detract from their grades, I don't think. But uh, having a good time was a big focus. And that's some people I don't had nothing to do with that. But others who I went on to room with in the future uh, were into uh, early versions of Gurgle kind of uh, with drinking and having a good time. And that's where the T-shirt came from.
0: If I'm not mistaken, it said something like the grocery spelled G-R-O-S-S-E-R-Y. Yeah,
1: the grocery. That's right.
0: And I think it was the only uh, T-shirt from a freshman entry that uh, ever, ever appeared, at least during our time.
1: I just say it shows you where the values of the residents of Sage B were. So
0: the other um, area, physical location that I personally associate with you, and I know others have mentioned this as well, is that um, hypnotic buzz, ozo-burning location buried in the depths of the what was then the Stetson Library. And it was the lower reading room. And I think you logged a lot of hours down there. Am I right about that?
1: You're right. And in fact, several people organized to give me my chair at graduation. The chair that I sat in for four years, I, I mainly sat across from two upperclassmen, uh, Rusty Powell and John Lane, who went on to be uh, huge in American art. Both of them uh, became heads: Rusty, the, the National Gallery, and Jack, the Dallas Museum. They're big machers in the in the museum world. And the three of us sat at that same table for I sat there for four years.
0: You know, uh, having read in the book more about your New York upbringing, I wonder what it must have been like for you to find yourself in Williamstown, which has one street, basically, uh, Spring Street, and you're this hip New York guy sort of landing in the middle of all of this.
1: I got hipper as time went on.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, I I do remember um, going up to uh, Bennington, I think it was our senior year, um, and sort of walking in the commons, which is where everyone liked to congregate, is sort of the beginning of social uh, interactions. And one of the students said, you can tell Bennington is back in session when you can see David Cypress hanging out at the commons. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that, wow. But I I see, I think, a lot of people recognize that at Williams, you were a very, very serious student. Uh, you produced a lengthy uh, senior thesis. Um, you were accepted by Harvard, among many other accomplishments. That said, I think several of your classmates were aware of a more adventurous side of you, which may have led you to explore certain paths that others perhaps did not choose. Wasn't there a story about the summer of love in 1967 in San Francisco? What can you tell us about that?
1: Uh, in the summer of 1967, I traveled to California with Daddy Jim, Jim Thompson, Kurt Waugh, and a few others. We we drove there in Kurt's ancient well, wasn't so ancient then Volvo, and I spent the summer. I was supposedly going to the Herbert Hoover Institute at Stanford to study, continue my study of Russian history for the summer, but I never matriculated. Instead, instead, uh, we hung out. I wound up going to Haight-Ashbury in the summer of love for uh, uh, some period of that. <laughs> um, hitchhiked down to L.A. for a while, uh, came back. Went back to Haight-Ashbury, and I, actually what happened was that I began to get really scared because uh, I felt really unmoored from the David Cypress deep down inside I was, who was someone who was pretty much a good boy and did what he was supposed to do. And um, I began to, the, the whole hippie thing and the drug thing began to really freak me out. So I drove back to New York with Andy Parnes, who was someone who was a year ahead of us, and I stayed in the apartment on the upper west side of a my friend Daryl Hartshorn, who was a Bennington student, about three blocks from my parents' apartment uh My parents thought I was still at the Hoover Institute, but I spent that August just wandering the streets of the upper West Side, hoping I wouldn't run into them and then back- back in school for you know back for the in September at Williams.
0: So I see this as sort of the counterculture version of David Cypress. And you've just elucidated how there was this uh, struggle between uh, the two impulses. And I think you bring that out very nicely in the um, cartoon of you standing on the steps of Widener Library in Harvard Yard. Um, I'm a good student. I'm going to join the protest against the war. That's a, a wonderful article that we have also uh, put up on our website. Um, that kind of speaks to that same kind of conflict, no?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and it was part of a deeper conflict, which had more to do on a personal level with my father and his certain expectations that I'd been living out for my whole life until my my second semester at Harvard, uh, which was to be something like a professor, a diplomat, a lawyer, who knows secretary of state, anything my father could be proud enough of to brag to his customers about in his store. And those expectations weighed very heavily on me and led to a lot of confusion about who I really was because deep down inside, ever since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be an artist and specifically a cartoonist. And so uh, I, I equate those the hippie versus the not hippie artist versus father's expectations, a sort of the same battle inside me, which was resolved for me by a professor at Harvard uh, who basically caused me to drop out of school, so.
0: You write about that in the book. Um, You walked out on the exam and never looked back. Yeah,
1: he was a piece of shit. I mean, he did a terrible thing, but it was a big
0: favor to me. Uh ultimately, some of the worst moments turn out to be the greatest yeah. gifts and you move on to something completely new. Well, I personally remember you uh, moving almost immediately to Cambridge after graduation and kind of pacing up and down between Harvard and Central Square, uh, looking for some kind of meaning. I know there was a phase on Green Street, the street that runs parallel to Mass Avenue. Um, I spent some time there, uh, in an apartment, not far from the yellow cab parking lot. You may remember that. Uh, so how, how did that evolve? Is, is that another instance of the, of the counterculture, uh, perking, or was this just, uh, where you had to be because it was near Harvard?
1: Well, it was both. I mean, it was very convenient, but I, I did stay there after I dropped out too, for a while, uh. I had a girlfriend who lived across the street, and in the building that she lived, and the building that was attached to it, uh lived uh the Jim Queskin jug band and a number of other sort of musicians, including Van Morrison. Right. And uh uh I had this unforgettable moment, which I, I think I talk about in the essay where I was in bed with my girlfriend and WBCN came up was on the radio and the song came on and he, I was high, and I thought, wow, that's the most incredible song I've ever heard. Wait a minute. Cypress Avenue?
0: <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> they this knew about you.
1: He's singing about me. <laughs> uh, so, yes, it was definitely both before and after I dropped out of school, uh, my immersion into the counterculture of Cambridge, very much so. used to hang out at Jack's Bar. I don't know if you huh? remember it.
0: Spider Ray- John Kerner was a
1: regular there. Bonnie Raitt. Uh, Jay Jay Giles, a whole lot of people,
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Orson Welles, yeah, those were some pretty uh, interesting times. Yeah, well, one thing, uh, knowing that you're uh, from New York and you give us uh, a lot of insights into what that meant growing up, um, and then you wind up spending, what, 11, 12 years in Boston? 15, 15 years. I, I remember running into you on yeah. occasion, once on the on the Green Line, uh, and you were basically at that point, Alston, Brighton, hanging around um, and, and working at, at sort of jobs, I think at once at a library, trying to sort of emerge and, and let your art grow and mature while you were there. And uh, you did manage, I think, uh, first steps as a as a cartoonist. You detail selling your cartoons in Harvard Yard, which I think is wonderful. But the Boston Phoenix, which was sort of originally a, a counterculture um, mag uh, paper, uh, a weekly, um, did pick up your cartoons, and they they were of the style of a certain drawing style. I call it Cyrano de Bergerac because uh, uh, all of the characters had ex- exaggerated nasal characteristics uh, and then we have the the current very recognizable cypress drawing style that we all see in the new yorker and other locations how, how did you get from point a to point b uh, style yes. wise
1: you mean uh, well i was first of all i was uh it was very young in my career and i i hadn't really figured out my style entirely. I knew that I wanted the same thing I want today when I sit down to draw, which is I wanted my drawings to look spontaneous, direct, no fuss, just I had the idea and I drew it and I want the reader to pick up on that spontaneity. But back then I was a little bit obsessed with certain artists and cartoonists. One of them is a fellow named Arnie Levin, who's a wonderful New Yorker cartoonist. He's no longer in the magazine very much. And his characters had these really Mm -hmm. big noses. And I I was drawing big noses for, before I was familiar with him uh, because I used to have like a certain, uh, my sister used to make fun Uh of my nose and I used to be (laughs) sort of obsessed with nose stuff. And uh, I kept drawing that way until I began to see Arnie's cartoons. And I thought, wow, people are going to say I'm ripping him off. So at that point, I started giving my characters a nose job, really uh, diminishing the size of the noses when I realized I could still draw funny with just regular noses. Um, that's a story behind the story well, there.
0: That's intriguing, uh, but it is radically different. I mean, the whole evolution of the stylistic, it's a completely different style of drawing. Um, did you ever formally study uh, art? Did you take any studio art studio classes at Williams
1: no I didn't I um uh I, first of all i what I have to say is that the New Yorker is an incredible teacher uh the first time you see your cartoon in the magazine everything wrong with your drawing jumps <laughs> out at you it's it's the change of context is a powerful thing and I learned a lot in my first couple of years uh, of appearing about what I wanted mm-hmm. to change about mm-hmm. my style um but no, I had no formal training. However, in those 15 years I lived in Boston, I I got really interested in, in, in serious art. And I had a friend who was the head of the painting department at Massachusetts college of art, Mm -hmm. Rob Moore. And he, he said, try drawing the model a little. So I I would go to night classes and drawing through the model. And eventually I was actually teaching life drawing to, uh, uh, adult education students yeah. at mass art for about for a year or two um, where I felt like a complete imposter believe me because most of the students drew the model a lot better than I could so.
0: but you had insights into the process of what it takes to to actually do drawing I don't think people don't realize how much art and how much um, effort it takes to actually draw things uh, it's it, drawing in itself is Every great artist also knows how to draw, right? You see Rembrandt's drawings. Uh, it, yeah. But I
1: would not put myself in that category, but I will say that I've been drawing since I was a little kid. And from the very first, when I I'd put a drawing implement in my hand and touch it to the page, my whole body would calm down. I would feel good about the world. There's something very mm-hmm. physical in it for me that has always connected me Fantastic. to drawing.
0: Uh, So so when you were down there burning ozone in the lower reading room, did you occasionally take a break and draw something?
1: I I was always drawing in the margin. If I look back at my notebooks, the margins are filled with Uh silly drawings. Um, But they never they didn't start extending themselves into the main page until my last semester at Harvard, really. Uh, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, Sandy, I. I, had, I knew that I was never going to do the Russian history thing eventually. I, was ne- I, w- I knew I was going to be an artist, uh, but I just had to find a way to gather the courage to make the change. Speaking of
0: courage, so. it's clear that you had that in abundance and lots of perseverance as well. Uh, turning back to the book, I was intrigued to discover just how much there is to learn about cartoons. I mean, as an art form. Like most of us, I've been looking at cartoons ever since I was a kid, but probably didn't really start thinking about them as much as I did after reading your book. Uh, One thing that immediately becomes clear is that there are many types of cartoon. Uh, For example, uh, I learned there are single image cartoons of various types and focus, some of which have had historical impact. I remember seeing the world-famous cartoon by Bill Malden, published immediately after the assassination of John Kennedy, showing Abraham Lincoln leaning forward with his head in his hands, weeping at the Lincoln Memorial. Images like that are so striking that they become part of our lives, our memory. And you could contrast that type of cartoon with panel cartoons or Comic strips. So there are artists ranging from Charles Schultz to Gary Trudeau to Robert Crumb, to name just a few, who've created an entire universe, unique styles of expression within that genre. And then you have the movie Fantasia, which has captivated generations of viewers with a sequence of animated images that blend fantasy with reality. And I think some people would call that a cartoon and lump that together with Bugs Bunny, Mr. Magoo, and the Roadrunner. So really, uh, there's an entire range. And i It's fantastic. I don't think I had ever really thought that much about it.
1: You're forgetting the, the very earliest, which is uh, if you look at books of Mark, Michelangelo drawings, many of them are referred to as cartoons. Uh, yeah, uh, so Renaissance drawing sometimes calls those images that are drawn- at I cartoons. didn't know that. But, but, but what you're saying is true. There are all these different worlds in cartooning and interestingly, they very rarely, at least until recently uh, came together Uh, These days, a young cartoonist can't possibly make a living just doing what I do, single panel cartoons. So they've extended out, along with the internet, to all kinds of other kinds of cartoons, animation, uh, strips, all that stuff. Um, I've only ever done this one thing, which uh, is this called single panel cartoons or gag cartoons, um, which is a name I hate. But... um, just to take off from what you were saying, my idea of a cartoon, a mm-hmm. good cartoon, has one important factor. It has to be funny. That's that's the most important thing to me. And you were you were talking about Bill Malden and stuff like that. I've also done political work uh, for the New Yorker, a lot mm-hmm. of it over the years. But my idea of a of a political cartoon is also that it has to be funny because I think that if you make someone laugh, you make them think it's a, it's a sort of a straight arrow right into the brain. And I, and it makes, it makes the cartoon memorable in a way that a more serious one might not. At least that's my theory uh, because I, I, as I said, funny is well, the bottom getting line. Getting back to me. Bill
0: Malden briefly. He also was, perhaps even better known as a cartoonist, he was in the army. And uh, when I was a kid, we had a book of his cartoons and he found that his two characters were Joe and Willie, I think. And they were always finding something uh, humorous in the midst of a tremendous, uh, difficult, challenging, awful series of moments in history. Uh, So yeah, uh, having that, yeah,
1: I, I that's my job. I always thought, uh-huh. especially during the Trump administration, when I did the daily cartoon for the New Yorker and every day I had to come up with a, a topical cartoon. I That's the way I felt. I felt like it's my job to make people laugh in these terrible times, but at the same time, make a point that I want to make. Well, I think make.
0: you've succeeded. Yeah. And uh, that's why so many people um uh, I'm going to jump forward. I have this on my list of things to talk about. Um, is there any plan to publish it, uh, that series of cartoons um, individually or together? That's It's the 2016 and 2020 campaigns that you were giving us uh, daily um, cartoons.
1: No, no one has approached me about that. And it, honestly, these days it's very hard to sell the idea of a collection of cartoons to anybody. Um, uh, they don't do very well, ultimately. So uh, I, I haven't given that much thought and nobody's approached me about that. Uh, but I have put them together for myself. I like to look at them, remind myself how terrible things were before. So the things that are going on now don't no, seem as There are lots of ways of publishing these
0: so. days. Do you own those or does The New Yorker?
1: I I own okay. first. They only own first rights, uh, so, so I, only, something I own. Something could happen in yeah. the
0: future. I, I I personally would love to see the sequence. Um, it, it amazes me that uh, you were able to do that on demand. It's like, I think of um, Joni Mitchell made the remark once, when she was on tour and people just wanted to hear the same songs over and over again. And she said, you know, I I sometimes think of. of of Van Gogh and nobody ever said paint a starry night again yeah Uh, so (laughs) you have this
1: (laughs) well I did get a little sick of doing Trump cartoons I have to (laughs) say just a quick
0: observation on that I think Alec Baldwin um, also may have gotten a little tired of playing him on Saturday Night Live he said it was so easy because the guy was so (laughs) angry that you can just peek into him at at any different level at any time yeah
1: you know there's a wonderful cartoon by a cartoonist named robert layton in the new yorker and it's a cartoonist sitting at his desk and his wife is just coming in the door and she says that trump cartoon you just did it just happened
0: (laughs) yeah well um i have a couple of other um categories and i'd be interested to know if you find them valid or not uh, we've talked a little bit about social commentary in fact we've talked a lot about it um but what about caricature i think of al Hirschfeld in the new york times uh, a, a great sunday tradition find how many ninas he's embedded in his caricature um, I don't know if you would call him a cartoonist or a caricaturist, um, but there are people who go to uh, social events and fairs, and they'll they'll draw you, uh, and it's like a caricature. At the same time, it has something in common with cartoon art. Maybe you can elucidate that. Uh, well, I I. Um...
1: I think of that more in terms of the whole notion of editorial cartoons, which include caricatures of politicians and, and the like. The great Barry Blit, the New Yorker artist, is a genius at that, the cover artist. Uh, and um, the thing is that in the New Yorker, in the pages of the magazine, there, there's except for him, cartoonists somehow understand you don't, you don't use caricatures. Uh, it's it's sort of considered a cheap way of scoring a point mm-hmm. because, um, it, you know, and it relates to political cartoons. You'd have like someone wearing a sign that says, I'm a Democrat. And, and that's how you'd know he's a Democrat. Yeah. I, and so I've, over the years, found my own way of dealing with the, first of all, I'm not very good at drawing caricatures uh, and I'm not that interested in it either. But um, I substitute like a king character for a president or a, medi- a medieval setting for what's going on today uh, or a king to represent government in general. Mm-hmm. And that way I get the same point across, but it gets back to my original thing that I said before, it's funnier. Yeah. And that's what matters to me. So it's much funnier to see, not to lambast Trump directly, but to create create a character, of a king, who clearly is Trump, that the audience understands is Trump, saying something Trumpy, and um, it's just funnier that way, and I, that's the way I deal with my own inability and lack of desire to do caricatures. I, I think
0: it's, it's how you go above the whole thing. It reminded me immediately of Gary Trudeau's feather, the sort of float in the breeze that uh, represented uh, W, George W. Bush. And and people just picked up on it right away. (laughs) It was a much more subtle and ultimately more effective um, way of conveying an idea Um, and also social commentary. Um, So my final question or thought about characterization. uh, First of all, Al Hirschfield, yes or no cartoonist? Uh,
1: Yeah, not the kind of... The category is huge, as you pointed out before, but uh, it doesn't really interest me that
0: much. Okay. Um, now, one of my favorite moments in life is when The New Yorker comes with a cover drawn by Jean-Jacques saint uh, And he's done children's work. He's universal, universally known, but he's also called a cartoonist. And I see sort of a blend of artist and cartoonist there. Uh, and that got me thinking. And I thought, well, I'll ask David what he thinks. He'll probably have some useful. Some Yeah, some I think Sam a
1: genius. I think yeah. he's an amazing cartoonist. And he brings that sort of European point of view that uh, is not really seen that much. And I've always loved seeing his cartoons in The New Yorker because they're so gentle. Yeah. And they, they manage to make a joke without making fun of anybody, uh, which is also something I'm interested in. Um, I I just think he's a genius. I love his work. His drawing is wonderful. His playful drawing is the kind of drawing I really love in cartoons. He's definitely one of my top 10.
0: I'm also an admirer, and I I really appreciate what you said about the gentleness, um, and, and you realize how powerful that can be. It's sort of uh, along the same lines of the king on his throne and the feather floating around in direction. Um, What about uh, tropes, memes, whatever you want to call them? I'm thinking about Desert Island, crawling through the desert, the lone mystic perched on the mountainside. Um, These are images that perennially attract cartoonists and it's almost like a contest to see Who can come up with the most original extension of an idea that goes back to who knows when? Uh, How do you see that as sort of a pool from which everybody draws or fishes? Um,
1: Well, first of all, you've absolutely nailed it because every cartoonist I know at the magazine says the same thing, which is every week when we hand in our batch, you you include one or two of those tropes. Mm And the idea is always to, you're going to be the one that pushes it to a place it's never been before. So it is a kind of contest or or, uh, test that I set myself and I know other cartoonists do. How can you do yet one more Desert Island cartoon and make it funny and in a way no one's thought of before? What's interesting is the one you left out is one of the most common ones, which is the Grim Reaper. That's ah. uh, a very, very popular one, but mm-hmm. I have to tell you, and ever since COVID started, there hasn't been a single Grim Reaper cartoon in the ah. New Yorker. Ah. So,
0: and there, another one is the end is near. You have a couple of those, I think.
1: I, I that. Those I use. I ever almost once a month, I sit down and draw that image and try to figure out something new to say about it.
0: So let me ask a little bit about the creative process behind your cartoons. I heard by chance uh, a YouTube um, interview with David Lynch, and they were asking him about his dreams, because obviously you look at his work and say, oh, my God, how could anyone think of that? He must have this prolific dream life. And he said, no, I didn't have any dreams at all. He never remembers them. He has no idea. But he does get ideas. And what he said was, um, I've learned over the years that when you get an idea, always capture the original language in which it comes because that is part of what you're being given, uh, what's part of what's coming through. So we have people like Lennon and McCartney and the melody might come and one or the other might, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, uh, that sort of thing, but you're a solo practitioner, uh, in your experience, uh, how does that balance out, um, image words, words to image or both at the same time, or do all of those happen?
1: All of those happen. Um, there have been drawings that I looked at for months, even years before I came up with the words that fit the drawing. Uh, often I will hear just the other day, I heard someone say you had to be there. And I thought, wow, that's a great. That's great. So I've been, I wrote that down, and I've been trying to come up with a cartoon that includes that caption. Uh, so it happens all kinds of ways, um, but mostly it's mushed together. Uh, I'll sit here at my desk, where I am right now, and kind of open my mind to whatever possibilities come through my head, and it's usually a mission. It's usually both things happening at once. Now they both have to be crafted. Uh, people don't realize how much craft goes into writing a cartoon caption. Uh, it it's generally the rule is less is more, uh, how, how to say something in the fastest possible way, but not always. Sometimes a long complicated caption can be funny as long as the reader has the patience to read it. Um, and, 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 I always think of them as sort of thin filaments that can be ripped apart by a punctuation mark that's wrong or a word that's out of place. Uh, so I'm constantly trying to hone my captions. And, and also the important thing is about a caption, it has to sound like someone's actually talks. I, I, I've i talked before, even at the, uh, at the book launch, I talked about the uh, uh, dealing with both the fact checkers at the New Yorker and the copy editors. And several times over the years, the copy editors have corrected the grammar in one of my captions, and I write back immediately. Yeah, that's right, but that's not how people talk. People talk the way I wrote it.
0: Yeah. So thank you for clarifying that. I know at at one point in your book, you talk about the power of the cartoon to condense and synthesize a moment of human experience. Uh, In that sense, cartoons might share with good writing, and I think in particular poetry, the power to draw from us an awareness that we didn't even know we had and are even surprised to suddenly learn about. And so a cartoon with its caption can almost instantly produce that effect. Let me see if I can give an example from one of my favorite Cyprus cartoons. On one side of the highway, cars are all jammed up as far as the eye can see. But it's clear sailing in the other direction with a road sign that says Schadenfreude for the next 20 miles. And as I just said, I probably never gave much thought to that situation, even though it's familiar and certainly familiar to many others. And I certainly wasn't aware that I might react in that way. But sure enough, I do. And from there, perhaps the realization that society acts this way not just the individual, so there's a layer of social commentary, perhaps implicit. Um, I may be way off base with this, so please feel free to correct me. You know, you have
1: it absolutely right. I mean, that's a really good example because that comes from life. I mean, how many times have I been in that position of driving, you know, the right way when everyone else is going jam-packed on the other side of the highway and feeling a certain amount of pleasure, uh, that I'm not on that side of the road. And then my wife will say, well, you know, we have to come home eventually. And you know, <laughs> by then it'll all be gone. <laughs> but I struggled with that. I had that. I, it, what you're talking about, strangely enough is what I can only call feelings, uh, mm-hmm. a situation like that arouses, creates a feeling, uh, in that case, a very complicated feeling. You don't want to be a bad person. On the other hand, you do have a certain amount of pleasure in in, in your in your uh, freedom to drive the, the empty road. So that feeling was the source of that cartoon. I tried and I tried a number of ways of doing that cartoon over the years until I landed on that. Um, I, I wrote some long, complicated caption at one point about the the moral question involved or something like that. And then some. one day we were driving up and I I felt that way and I saw a road sign and bam, there was the idea. Quickly drew it so I wouldn't forget it.
0: At the same time that you have that capability to zero in and bring out something that people normally do but may not be aware of, isn't there also a tendency in cartooning to veer toward the topical? I'm thinking of a cartoon you wrote poking a little fun at NPR's Fresh Air host, Terry Gross, uh, a familiar figure to many, if not most, New Yorker readers. And then, right after it was announced that Bob Dylan had been awarded a Nobel Prize, you drew a cartoon, without mentioning his name, of a hitchhiker who, one caption tells us, is somewhere in the Midwest in 1961, with a thought balloon saying, To-do list. Get to New York, play a few folk clubs, write a few songs, make a record, win the Nobel Prize. That cartoon, when I read it in 2016, seemed so much of the moment. You see something and you say, this is now, this is happening, this is going to be of interest. So if you had written that cartoon, uh, say four years earlier, long before it was announced that Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize, it would not have had the same impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I depend on keeping my eyes and ears open to what's going on in the world at that moment to uh, to, to inspire ideas. Absolutely. I, I did one recently about his 80th birthday uh, where the wife saying something to the husband, something like, uh, don't you think now it's time to forgive him for going electric you know something like that
0: <laughs> I don't think I saw was that in the new yorker uh, it was a,
1: yeah it was a daily cartoon in the in the on the on the website
0: you know there's one thing I've always wanted to know about the New Yorker It's about the cartoon contest each week. the magazine offers a new cartoon that appears without a caption and readers are invited to invent one. The next step is to show the captions submitted by the three finalists, and finally, in the next issue, we get to see who the winner is. I assume you've done that. In fact, I'm pretty sure you have. What can you tell us about what happens behind the scenes? Is it true that the cartoons already have a caption? Yes,
1: uh, and the odd thing about that is, first of all, I've done very few. Uh, The former cartoon editor, Bob Mankoff, who was prone to such things, Uh, said something to me once, which I was never sure it was a compliment or an insult. He said, you know, we don't use your cartoons very much for the contest. Uh, They're too too complete as they are. So, but um, I've done maybe four over, I don't know how many years. And in three of the four, the winning caption was exactly the same caption that I handed in. Uh, with ah, the original ah, ah. cartoon, cause that's what they do. They, they look through your batch and if they see one they like, they'll take out the caption and use it for the caption contest. So, so I guess he was right. You know, I guess my ideas are too complete.
0: Uh, do you think that's I think it engages the readers and uh, it's uh, it's been
1: terrific terrific for what I do it's made at first we were all nervous about it and we thought well people think it's so easy to do what we do whatever the fact is that it's brought more attention to our art form than anything else um, and and really engaged people in what our process is
0: let's talk about your new book It struck me that you could have dropped the phrase as a cartoonist from the title because the book is so deeply personal. And at the same time, themes like coming to an understanding of who our parents are or were are clearly universal and affect nearly all of us. And I think you deal with that theme in a very agile and skillful way. And that's one of the things that brought the book home for me. But with all that, I'm curious to know how long it took you to write the book.
1: Well, let me just say one thing, first of all, about the title. What's so funny? A a cartoonist memoir. My agent and my editor added the subtitle because they thought it would sell books because people know that's who I am. And I think they were I think they were right. And um, in a way, people read it. Someone it's been a little frustrating at times because I do feel like it's a literary memoir. Uh, But on balance, I think that was a good choice because uh, it called attention to it. I mean, just think, I got on Terry Gross because uh-huh. I'd done a Terry Gross cartoon. Uh, so um, it had... Ha- anyway, I I started writing the book about three years ago, but actually I started in 2014. I started writing personal essays for The New Yorker. Uh, two or three or four of them are, are in the book as chapters in the book, uh, although somewhat changed. And, uh, but when I sat down to write the memoir, I did a cartoon about this. I, I pictured myself as in front of my, my screen about to type. And on the screen is the title. Uh, nothing interesting has ever happened to me, a memoir, which is, and that's how I, I felt at the beginning, but once I started writing, um, the, I began to be engaged and the stories came back to me and I started writing the stories. And that was about three years ago that I really I really got into it. Um, I wrote a complete draft of the book after about a year. I was very happy with it. Uh, but before I showed it to my agent, I, I showed it to my world's best editor, advisor and partner, my wife, Ginny. And she read it, and she, and, and she jokes that she had to have two therapy sessions before she spoke to me, uh, because what she said to me, she, read, she she was scared, and she said, David, it's not good. Uh, there's a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? She said, it's not funny.
0: Mm.
1: And it, she was right. It was deadly serious. And that's when I, I rewrote the book uh-huh. using the cartoons, and trying to write about all this stuff, including the serious personal stuff, without ever wandering too far from who I am, which is an artist who expresses himself mainly through humor. Uh, and uh, once once I figured that out, I really got going on the book and the writing came faster. Um, the other thing is that I've only ever written captions in my life before, before I started on this book. And I was how am I going to write a mm-hmm. book? I mean, I'm mainly it takes me 30 seconds to write a caption. Uh, and the ideas come like this. Well, when the writing went well, I began to have this experience, not unlike coming up with cartoon ideas, but the ideas would happen one after another, after another on a good day. And that was incredibly exciting. And and the whole thing turned into a kind of adventure that I really, really enjoyed. So it-
0: it animated the whole process and, and gave it um, a new life. And so thank you, Jim, yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Uh, intervening and getting this thing back on track. I'm curious, have you ever uh, read memoirs? I'm thinking of Bunuel wrote a very fascinating memoir called uh, My Last Sigh. There are anecdotes of different times and places as a child growing up in Spain in a very small village and it sort of shift from one topic to another. And in, in recently rereading that, it struck me how difficult it is to write a memoir, that it's not just um, recording what happened or or tracing one particular theme, that there are moments that sort of well up and um, define certain uh, periods or phases in your life. And those perhaps are the ones that you want to capture. The other insight that sort of came forward, and I don't know if this applies to you, is that if if you look back uh, at, at certain events that happened that may have seemed prosaic or ordinary, uh, in in reliving and remembering them, you begin to see what a gift they were, how full of life and how meaningful they are. So if the distance gives meaning to things that have already happened. I don't know if that occurred to you or happened to you. Well,
1: uh, you, you, you almost said the whole thing, writing about those things also is its own source of uh, creating interest in yourself in those things and interest in, on the part of the reader. I mean, it's, it's the writing about what to me seemed prosaic, ordinary, Events. Once I started putting them down on the page, that's when I began to understand that I could turn those prosaic uh, anecdotes, events, stories into something really valuable. Um, And that that writing is, for me, an amazing way to accomplish that. Uh, Yeah. So and and I the memoir. This one memoir. I read a lot of memoirs the one that has most influenced me over the few the last few years is by uh, John le Carré, who's my favorite novelist. And we
0: share that uh, by the way. And he,
1: his, his memoir, the, the pigeon tunnel is a fabulous book. And uh, he, he liberated me in two ways. One, he says in the book that uh, I write this in my book, a, a perfect memory is as elusive as a wet bar of soap. Basically <laughs> yeah. saying you don't have to get everything right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, how you remember things that's interesting, whether or not they can be fact-checked. yeah. And also, he said, he's just going to write things and they're not going to be chronological, they're not going to be in any particular order. Right. And that also liberated me to to do my book more or less that way.
0: Have you thought about uniting your other written contributions into any uh, single form, maybe publishing? I...
1: I I'm trying to figure out what to do next, Sandy. I'm still at this phase where I I can't get out from under the book that I've written uh, and everything that I have to do about it. Uh, And I hope that in a month or two or three, I'll be able to take a deep breath and think about what I want to do next. And that may be part of it. Um, But uh, I don't know right now. Every time I try to think about it, I just give
0: up. So (laughs) well you have to give it some time and let let things germinate uh it's it's uh it's intriguing to me to contemplate the difference between coming up with just the right caption which is a i think uh, a moment of inspiration i i write captions all the time for the website taking these old pictures and i know what a thrill it is when you get it right uh and I, i would never be a cartoonist but the caption part and and it's distinct from from actually drawing out something in in a longer form. Uh, But maybe there's a relationship that I personally haven't perceived. Maybe you can see further in that direction. i think about it. Um, Yeah, give it some thought. I'm curious to know if you see uh, the experience of writing the book as uh, perhaps in some way a culmination, Um, maybe a process whereby you reached a plateau of understanding Um, Also wondering if there might be a sense of relief or maybe catharsis uh, in that you were able to take certain dark elements, review them, digest them, and ultimately, as you've described, inject humor along the way. Uh, Where did that process leave you? Well, uh, the
1: storytelling of the book uh, has left me Uh, with a sense that they're deep in here, there are probably a lot of other stories that I have to tell. Um, But the main thing emotionally that I'm left with from the book, interestingly enough, is I feel much closer to my mother, my father, and my sister than I did before I wrote the book. Uh, In the process of writing it, I arrived at a kind of understanding about who they were, how they did the best they could, given their limitations, and uh, it helped me to forgive them for stuff and to forgive myself for stuff. Uh, and that's been the main impact emotionally for me. At the same time, I have to I mean, I have to say that uh, I've never felt so satisfied as a creative person, as I do right now, because I feel like I have been doing the same thing for 50 years. And then I tried to do something new and different and I did it. And I I don't, am not trying to brag or anything, but it it makes me feel so good about myself that it's helped me to overcome a lot of the lack of self-confidence and self-doubt that's been plaguing me for a long time. This book is really, been kind of magical in that way for me. I feel like at this advanced stage, which you and I have reached, it's a really great thing to finally let go of a lot of the self-doubt that's been plaguing me and writing the book really took care of that for me.
0: Well, I say congratulations and all power to the spirit of 76, which is a number that we're more, more fairly recently becoming used to. Um, I think we've been at it for about an hour And uh, this has been fantastic for me. I want to thank you enormously. Um, I'm sure this is going to be a a smash hit as number one in our podcast series. (laughs) Again, you're blessed. And may you continue to uh, feel this uh, surge of uh, understanding. I mean, I wish the same for myself.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. I, I wish it for you as well.